Hello and welcome to Technicast, a podcast showcasing research from across the arts and humanities. I'm Isabel Sykes and I'm new to the Technicast team. I'm excited to share with you the next instalment of our series on the senses. Today we hear from Vivica, a researcher and filmmaker doing a PhD on the embodied practice of natural indigo dyeing in West Bengal. I'll leave you to enjoy Vivica's fascinating and immersive paper on her research just now, and I'll join you for a chat with her afterwards. Skeins of mulberry silk are hanging on a bamboo frame in the shade. They look like thick manes of ivory hair. I've never seen this much silk in my life and I'm mesmerized by its luster, the way it shimmers in the morning light. Combing my fingers through the strands, I can feel the sticky resin that coats the silk threads. It's a protein called sericin, excreted by the salivary glands of Bombyx mori, one of the species of moths that make silk. Actually, it's the larvae of Bombyx mori that weave silk, this fiber which humans have swooned over for 4,000 years. I'm told it takes over 6,000 silkworms to produce a single kilo of silk. Over the six days I'm here, I think we use at least five. I'm in a village four hours north of Kolkata by car, and I'm learning about extracting color from flowers, leaves, bark and roots and using them to dye silk and cotton yarn. I'm also here to learn the ancient craft of indigo dyeing. One of the world's oldest dyes, indigo is a blue colouring matter extracted from the leaves of a shrub of which there are over 700 species all over the world. Indigo the blue colour that has enchanted and enslaved people all over the world for thousands of years has now drawn me into its mysterious and magical world. I'm Vivica and I'm doing a practice-based PhD at Royal Holloway and Royal Botanic Gardens Kew about the revival of indigo dyeing in West Bengal. I'm also a filmmaker and use my craft to make the knowledge and skill in indigo dyeing visible. I responded to the call to contribute to this episode of Technist as an opportunity to make sense of my recent experiences with indigo dyeing when I attended a course in India. Though thinking plays its role in my research process, this is my chance to feel things out, to receive insights through my fingers, through what I hear, taste, smell, and see. So I'm going back to some of the sound recordings from my recent trip, and I invite you to experience the story as told by the senses. My hands break the surface of the coppery blue skin and sink into water the temperature of a bath drawn for a baby. Softly, I brush the spongy indigo flower to one side. The bloom forms when the vat is ready for dyeing. I'm beginning to learn a new language with my eyes, ears, nose, hands, taste buds, and even my intuition. I whisper a few words and imagine them swimming down into the vat. It's my way of greeting the indigo. 
Bubbles float onto the surface of the indigo skin when I lower a hank of silk into the vat. I hear a soft hiss, like sea foam dissolving on sand, like sherbet fizzing on my tongue. My face reflects back at me, and then I peer beyond the sheen, past the oily blue cuff forming at my wrists. Filaments of silk float away from my palms into the abyss. I hold onto the ends with my fingertips. My white nails emit pinpricks of light in the dark liquid. My cuticles have turned blue. The indigo has found me. I gently sway the cloth from side to side in slow motion, careful not to disturb the stillness. I glide my hands even deeper and place my palms under the hang, cradling it tenderly. My hands slip into the watery realm and disappear from view. Hot air clings to my body, but in the fermentation vat, my hands and forearms feel cool. The watery home of the millions of bacteria feels soft and smooth. Carefully, I let the yarn unfurl and fade from sight. My movements are slow to avoid agitating the liquid and introducing oxygen to it. The vat needs to be free of oxygen, otherwise the indigo won't penetrate the fibres. My movements send faint swirls into the liquid. Loose curls of blue unwind and dissolve again, like a sigh. Breathing evenly, my pace now matches that of the vat. Slow is good. Slow is enough. Being here is all that's asked of me. I can taste the loamy, earthy indigo, and then there's a sharp hint of cut grass. A distant, tangy smell of dung and dust floats up my nostrils on my next inhalation. During the extraction process, the indigo leaves are steeped in water and the plant remains returned to the fields. Wafting up from the vat now is the olfactory memory of the whole ecosystem of this indigo's making. Enfolded into the legacy of the indigo seeds are the vast geographies of place, from the local field, the waterways winding through the region, to the air and weather systems ruminating across the continent. The temporal layers embedded in the cultivation cycle of sowing, harvesting, replenishing the soil. Closer still, the bristly touch of the pollinator grazing against the indigo flower. And then, of course, the flat palms of all the farmers cutting the indigo, their hands binding together bundles with twine made from jute and the mesmerizing, ancient, and nowadays quite rare rhythm of men 
submerged in indigo water, kicking it up into a froth the colour of sea foam. Suddenly I'm aware of a repetitive noise, raspy, like sandpaper rubbing a rough surface. One of the village dogs scratches its back, body curved towards the claw of its hind leg, ears fanning backwards. Tuning out from the scratching, I tune in to the steady, hollow exhalation of gas from a cylinder heating a cauldron of water. Thwack, thwack of silk fibres pulled between sticks. Two men tug at it and twist it to wring it dry. It's astonishing how tough the silk fibres are, considering how fine and gossamer-like they are. Now my hands guide the silk towards my fingers and I loop the hank over my thumbs and squeeze the liquid into the threads for the last time. Gathering up the hank, my hands come into view as I raise them slowly, smoothly, from the deep of the vat, like a dolphin gliding upwards towards the light. Bright sparks of excitement and anticipation make my blood tingle. A string of nerves tightens around my tummy, pulling a shallow breath up into my chest. My heart's thumping. On my next breath, we break the surface, the silk, and my hands. I hold the hank close to the indigo water, and the drip sends small ripples across the glossy film that separates us now. All this time, I've been crouched low over the vat, curled up like a hedgehog. My limbs and my torso, my hips and my head, all gathered up into a single being. Now I begin to straighten up, and by the time I'm standing, the cocoon which sheltered me has been pierced. In my hands, the glossy threads of silk are a watery green, but another colour is emerging under my gaze. Parting my hands, I pull and push the loops of the hang apart and together, as though I'm playing a concertina. As oxygen gets to the threads, their colour transforms. It's alchemy before my eyes. Blue, the shade of the sky in early spring, sparkles on the surface of the silk. Waving the hang from side to side, the strands dance in the air and now all trace of leafy green has disappeared. I marvel at the lustrous blue mane I'm holding in my hands. I know that I've witnessed a chemical reaction, one that science can reason out with rules and express in formulae. But right now, the wonder, the enchantment, the joy soaring through all my senses is all that I want to bathe in. Hi, Vivica. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. Thanks, Isabel. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. I really enjoyed listening to your talk as well. Thanks again for sending that in. Um, really exciting to have this chat with you today. Oh, thank you. It's really nice to be here. <laughs> um, so the first thing I just want to ask you is what first drew you into indigo dyeing um, as both a practice and a research subject? Just your talk was so kind of immersive. Um, and the way you spoke about the process was really mesmerizing. So I wondered what first drew you into it yourself. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are two main things, really. Um, I've been interested in, in the craftsmanship of um, practices like indigo dyeing um, for quite a long time. And it's um, the knowledge and the skill in those practices um, that I think has, has just been a, a sort of consistent and persistent <laughs> passion for um, a few years now. And, um, uh, and I think it's, it's then uh, been about how that knowledge and that skill over a period of time becomes embodied practice so so really becomes embedded in in the body and our minds and and also in our hearts um and with this phd the opportunity to kind of arose to go even deeper and think about how that embodied experience has the potential uh to transform us um and so the second thing I mentioned, there are two things. The second part of, of my research is, is really around kind of sustainability and sustainable ways of living, but also sustainable ways of being. I'm really interested in kind of investigating that potential for transformation um, into, I guess, the, the kinds of people uh, that we can become when we connect a bit more with, with nature, when we have a dialogue with nature um, and what happens uh, when, you know, potentially a, a sense of care emerges from that, that relationship. Um, and at times also, like with indigo dying, creativity. So, yeah, so it's really that kind of um, understanding, experience, um, connection in the craft of indigo dying that I uh, am curious to know more about and to experience myself. That's really fascinating. I, I really like how you talk about with embodied practice, kind of, you know, going beyond the academic and really embracing our personal connections with our subjects. I think a lot of people kind of don't get to talk about sort of how they're personally sort of transformed and invested in their topics, but really having that intertwined in your research um, in terms of embodied practice is really, really interesting to me. Um, and I'm sure to everyone else as well. Yeah, I think the way that you expressed it just just now really hits the nail on, on the head because the opportunity with the kinds of PhD projects that we're doing within Techne is to have a different dimension of, of actually putting ourselves in the research. Um, so yeah, so I'm just grabbing, grabbing that and, and making the most of it. That's great. Um, and just like moving on into more of the content of your talk, um, I wanted to ask you a bit more about the historical roots that Indigo Dying has in Bengal. Um, I just wondered if you could talk a bit more about how this connection between practice and place has changed over time. Yeah, so... Um, in Bengal, indigo really stirs up a lot of emotions. Um, so in history textbooks, Bengali kids um, learn that indigo um, poisons the land, um, that uh, it becomes dead, contaminated, um, useless. And, and that's really due to uh, the connotation of indigo um, that became 
kind of entrenched uh, due to the colonial era um, and the industrial scale of, of indigo production during that time. So when Britain um, had its, its kind of administrative base in Kolkata, there are lots and lots of indigo plantations in what was then known as the state of Bengal. Um, it's now West Bengal where I'm, I'm focusing my work. So I can say a bit more about that perhaps later, but but the the, the connection between the practice and, and the place and how that's changed over time is quite an intriguing one because um, indigo production came to a stop really um, in kind of 19th century uh, due to, well, there are several things. One was that um, synthetic dyes were becoming more common and then actually um, synthetic indigo was invented um, uh, in 1897. And um, so the market for natural indigo became smaller and smaller. But there was also a lot of protests from farmers who were growing indigo and were growing it on land that could have been used for growing food crops. Um, there is also a, a system of kind of land tenure that is quite complex. I think that probably played a part as well. Land owners had all of the rights and the farmers um, didn't have so many rights and often fell into to debt that passed across generations. So it's kind of intriguing to me that in the very place where indigo was so contentious, um, where you know people died because of indigo, um, there's this resurgence and a, and a revival um, in wanting to learn again how to grow indigo and how to die with indigo. And it's a grassroots movement, um, but there are several organizations and individuals who feel very strongly about it. And you've been in India as well, haven't you, doing your research, doing your practice-based research sort of on location? Did you have sort of any contact with some of these grassroots movements? Have they been part of part of the process for you? Um, and were there any kind of sort of challenges within that? Um, yeah, so I'm working very closely. I mean, it's, it's really thanks to the kind of collaboration um, that I have with an organization in Bengal that's been um, really working hard to raise awareness about the cultural heritage of indigo dyeing. It's, it's thanks to that collaboration that, um, that, that this project has a dimension to it that is quite hands-on, but it's also... Um, I don't know, in terms of like the meaning of research, it, it makes me feel a lot more motivated because um, uh, I have my research interests um, and they're actually doing work on the ground, um, trying to tell people, uh, farmers, artisans about indigo and putting on workshops, etc. So it sort of has a very real connection. It's, mm. it's, it's, a, it's sort of pra being practiced in the real world. And I'm there kind of observing and participating in it. Um, so it's been amazing to go to India and um, the, the species that I'm looking at is Indigo Fera tinctoria. It happens to grow really well in Bengal, which is kind of why during the colonial era it was such a sort of commodity for the empire. Um, and uh, so 
it's been really wonderful to to actually see and handle the the plant to be around a divat, which you know is the topic of of the paper. Um, and I guess unlike some of the um, you know like East India Company employees who were very involved in the the indigo trade um, for the commercial value of indigo. Um, you know, I'm I'm there for very different reasons. I'm there really to understand the skill and the knowledge and the practice of indigo dyeing and that connection between the dyer and the indigo vat. You know, what is that about? And what is embodied practice? And you know, how um uh yeah, how how does that connect us to to ecosystems? How how can that kind of make us aware of the role that we play in these ecosystems, uh, whether they're urban or rural or, you know, and connections to the landscape. Um, so, and, and I think there's something else that um, just being there recently uh, brought to, to mind and, and really sort of embedded in me, which was um, actually the, the, the kind of the sense of enchantment and the sense of wonder and that rising sense of hope um, that I felt myself when I spent some time with the, the indigo vat. And what that makes me think about a lot is, um, uh, you know, the, the creative collaboration and partnership that, that we as people can have through these practices um, with plants um, in, in places um, that, are really, we're in co-creation, we're in sort of co-creative partnerships. Um, and there's something really beautiful and really touching and really hope-inspiring, I feel, about that, that um, maybe sits in opposition to a lot of the terrifying um, aspects of the kind of ecological crisis that we're also experiencing. Yeah, I think just when you were talking then about hope, I was kind of thinking it's how refreshing it is to hear those kinds of words, you know, um, hope and wonderment and collaboration when talking about a project that is to do with uh, environmentalism and the climate, because like you say, so often, you know, the narratives are uh, understandably, um, you know, quite a kind of pessimistic and dark picture to be facing. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. And I think there's something about, um, uh, you know, the position that, that we can hold as, as researchers who um, go into situations where, where we're not the experts. Um, you know, in, in uh, my research with, with India and, and in this part of Bengal, um, I'm very much a beginner. Um, I'm a beginner um in, in that place, uh, you know, I, do, I don't speak the language. I, I don't know the place. I'm getting to know it. Um, I, I'm also learning the practice of indigo dyeing. So I think it raises interesting questions also um, about how we can take advantage of the sort of the newcomers, maybe even naivete, but certainly that sort of sense of wonder and learning and curiosity to, to, to see things a, a little bit differently. And then that contrasts a lot with the people that we're learning from. So, I mean, I, I had the great 
fortune of of um, being on a course where the teacher was a master dyer who has learned the traditional and sort of ancient methods of the craft of, of dyeing with indigo and with natural dyes in general um, from these kind of master dyers from different parts of India. And she's been practicing for decades. And now her sole purpose, it seems, is to um, pass on that knowledge and, and to, to really make sure that it lives. Um, and so she had a great role to play in the kind of embodied experience of, of dying as well, because we wouldn't start the day with a lecture um, about, you know, the recipes we were going to use and um, the processes. She wanted us to use our our, our senses and we, and understand the processes with our bodies. Um, so so that that was a bit of a struggle for me initially because you know I am doing research and yes it's a practice based um, project but there is that that sort of scholarly set of lenses that, that I'm viewing all of this through. So actually it was an incredible. <laughs> Uh, wake up for her to sort of force all of us to not think and do and and really learn by touching by smelling tasting you know listening um and so i i just felt like i kind of reconnected with myself in many ways on on that course i think that's such a such a refreshing way of talking about and and experiencing learning that i think we feel or certainly I feel gets a bit lost at, at this kind of level of education, the sort of um, really immersing yourself and kind of giving yourself over to something new uh, and being just really receptive and um, yeah, embodied in the learning. Um, it's just not something that I feel like gets to happen as much at this sort of level of research. Um, and that's really cool that you get to do that. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's really cool that I get to do it. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just, I think we're very, very lucky to have access to uh, to these kinds of doctoral awards where, you know, practice-based approach is, is possible. And, uh, you know, and I think it's probably going to be encouraged more and more because there are so many different dimensions for the person who, you know, whose project um, is a good fit with that kind of approach approach um and for the person who who wants to do that sort of approach then I, I think it's wonderful to to have the option and 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 to be supported um to to carry out this kind of work yeah and you work with a lot of different kind of medium as well like not just with the dying but you're also working with film throughout that process as well aren't you um I wanted to ask you a bit more about that actually kind of just listening to your talk and how sort of um really immersed in the senses it is I was wondering what it's like trying to translate that kind of really tactile practice into you know film medium yeah I think with with film what what can happen there's the potential to really connect uh to the the viewer whoever that might be the audience um through sound and an image most obviously um but the sound and the the image can elicit emotions, they can trigger emotions, 
um, you know, good or or bad, but you can form this this connection between what uh, you're trying to convey in the film and the person you're trying to speak to. Um, and there's something really extraordinary about that because the medium of, of film with all of its devices, you know, different shot sizes, um, uh, you know, the way that you can use sound, what, what you choose to record, how you present it, how you cut sound and image together, it can really lead uh, the audience towards certain understandings. Um, and, and give them a sense of, of what it is that, that you've experienced as, as the, the filmmaker. And there's everything in addition to that. So um, the connections that people might have to their own experiences or memories or, you know, wh whatever else happens. So it's, it's, it's this extraordinary sort of, um, it's like a kind of conduit between two people or, or multiple people in, in different places across time. And um, so I think um, as a practice, it presents lots of exciting opportunities and challenges, I have to say. <laughs> um, but from, from a more sort of academic perspective as well, I think just, just thinking about film as a method uh, and, and thinking about how to design a, a methodological approach that uses film, it is is kind of intriguing, and there are lots of scholars who've who've written about this, um, and uh, and you know I'm I'm just kind of investigating, trying to contribute to some of of that knowledge, but also, you know, be a bit playful with it and experiment a little bit with it, um, and include other people in it as well. Um, so the organisation that I'm collaborating with you know they're also interested in 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 film and photography and documentation through uh through images and and sounds so so it's quite nice to be able to use you know just our phones they're pretty good actually <laughs> and a simple microphone to to capture uh what we're both experiencing but in slightly different ways um so so that difference in perspective is also something that um we can compare notes on, um, you know, whether any of that material goes towards actually making a film almost doesn't matter because it's, it's all, it kind of comes into the nature of the collaboration, sharing, exchanging, discussing ideas about what, what we are seeing and experiencing. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting what you say about um, it kind of doesn't matter what, what the sort of output is if there is a film or not it's about the sort of creative process and the craft of the making and the doing of it that's really important I feel like that connects so nicely with the themes of your research about the embodied practice about the kind of doing and the immersing yourself in it rather than funneling into a, a kind of an output and it, it brings me to my last question, actually, just about what the kind of outputs you are hoping to come out of the project, because it feels like there's so many different directions you could go with it and so many things that could come out of it. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, so some of the, the kind of outputs might include um, workshops. There's one in May, actually, at Q, um, sort of community-based workshop. Well, the, there will be lots of activities, and one of them is for people to, to try out dyeing with, with natural um, plant materials. Um, 
But I, I could also imagine uh, some exhibitions and, and, and really I keep coming back to the question of, you know, what impact, what kind of lasting impact beyond this PhD can this work have, mainly for, for I suppose, the, the you know, the, the communities in Bengal, because it's thanks to them that, that this is all happening, but also for, for Q and, and wider audiences. And I think part of that um, is, is the nature of the collaboration. So the kind of exchange, the way that we're collaborating, um, you know, with, this sense of curiosity with, with the sort of openness for things to emerge, um, uh, that sense of discovery, it's, it's all really important. So I feel like I'm being transformed through this process of, of research and collaboration. Um, and I think an ambition would be for, for people, you know, members of the public, for example, uh, to try out dying for themselves and, maybe form a connection, whatever that connection is. Uh, you know, it could, it could just be a fun one hour that makes them think, wow, I never knew you could get such beautiful sort of yellows and browns from onion skins, or I never knew that you could get such beautiful, light sort of dusty pinks from avocado stones. I'm gonna try that at home. You know, it could, it could just be that, where there's an inner transformation of some kind that, could be immediate or it might be latent, you know, it might just be something that someone who has an experience now um, in years to come is, you know, is, is triggered or, or awakened. Um, so, so those are, you know, some of the outputs are tangible <laughs> and very concrete. Mm -hmm. Some of them are, are less tangible, I think. And, and that's okay. I think mm -hmm. that's okay. I love that idea about, um, the kind of results of this research sort of organically emerging kind of rather than uh, having a really prescriptive idea about what you want to extract from the project. The idea of outputs kind of organically growing is is really lovely and a very nice note to finish on. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much again for coming to speak to me um, and for your really lovely talk. Oh, thanks, Isabel. And thanks so much for your really thoughtful questions. Um, I think they've helped me a lot as well. So this whole experience has actually been so fruitful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again to Vivica for sharing her research with us. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to participate in an episode with us, please do drop us an email to the address in our bio. You can also find us on Twitter at Technicast and on our shiny new Instagram at Technipodcast. Thank you and see you soon.